Father in heaven, thank you so much that you take us back again and again. That your mercy is anew every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We give this time to you, Lord. We give ourselves to you. Speak to us clearly. We're open. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Beware of no man more than yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. Truthful words are never easy to come to terms with especially when they deal with what's really on the inside of us. Charles Spurgeon was a master at getting to the point. So was Jesus. It's no surprise then that when we read this parable in Luke chapter 15, which we're going to look at again today, that most of us identify with who? The younger son, right? As the glory of God's extravagant grace bleeds through the text, we literally want to be in the returning son's shoes. We desire it with all our being because deep inside we all know, we are all well aware, that our sins of rebellion against God have found us out and we long for his mercy. This story gives us hope beyond hope that God's grace and forgiveness is always available even to the worst of us. His mercies are new every day. His faithfulness is great beyond our wildest imagination. No matter what we've done in our lives, no matter where we've been, no matter how often or how many times we've ignored him, shunned him, mocked him, disobeyed him or hurt him, when we come to him with a genuine heart, of radical repentance and seek his forgiveness. His forgiveness is always available to us. Amen. In abundance. This parable in Luke 15, if you're not there, I haven't read it this morning because we're going to read it as we go. This parable in Luke 15 reminds me of that. It reminds me and, and reveals to me plainly that Jesus came into this world and willingly sacrificed himself, not because of all the good that I've done, but for all the evil that I've done and ever would do. By his sacrificial death on the cross, he made it possible for even the most abominable atrocities to be forgiven. It reminds me that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. It reminds me that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting man's sins against them. It reminds me that no matter how bad we've messed up in our lives, it's not too late to turn around and still finish well. It's going to be a little bit different today. We're going to, my daughter and I are going to tag team this message. I want to introduce to you my daughter, Sarah. For those of you that don't know her, she's going to come up here and join me for the rest of this message. Along back in, oh, I'd say it was somewhere around 1997 or so, in this turbulent time from 1997 until 2000, 
and 8. We live this parable. Sarah lived it. My wife and I lived it. Our whole family lived it. Back in 2001, I was preaching through this parable like I am now. It was a whole different deal then. I'm preaching it from a whole other standpoint today with a smile on my face, not a hole in my heart. <laughs> so I'm going to introduce to you Sarah, my daughter Sarah, my beautiful daughter Sarah, child of God. <laughs> Well, I know that there's been a lot of people praying for me over the last week, so thank you guys. Um, really appreciate that and uh, had a lot of peace over this, so that's been great. When my dad approached me and asked me to share my testimony, uh, I was kind of filled with some conflicting emotions. During the first couple messages, I strongly felt a pull on my heart that God wanted me to share my story, and I was going to talk to him and say, if you want to use my story, feel free. And uh, before I got a chance to do that, he approached me and said, hey, would you come up and share your story? And I'm thinking, well, God, it's not really what I had in mind, but okay. <laughs> it's a little bit harder to be up here than to share your story in front of people amongst them. But um, I am uh, I'm happy to serve my Lord. I'm basically going to highlight through my testimony. It's very long, and there's a lot to it, and I don't have enough time to cover most of it today. So we're just going to um, pick things out here and there. Um, give you kind of a feel of where I was in my life. If I was to share everything, we'd be here all day, and, and I don't want to go long. You know, I don't know. It might be an, a hereditary thing. <laughs> um, everybody has common threads woven throughout their testimony. Um, some people um, say theirs is, focuses on grace. Some people say that God is steadfast, that he is faithful. Um, the biggest word that would describe my testimony is grace. Um, today I'm going to focus on rebellion and grace, as is um, talked about in the prodigal son's uh, parable. Um, I do want to warn you, I will probably cry. I've never gotten through a testimony with dry eyes. If I do today, it will be a first. And I, I also wanted to just say that um, when I talk about some of the things that happened to me, some of the things I went through, um, it's not those specific events, even though they were hard and very painful, that triggered deep emotions in me. What really causes my heart to break is when I think about God's grace and where I was and how far I was from God and what he's brought me through. And uh, just thinking about how lost I was and how he has restored me is just, um, is really incredible. And I thank him so much for that, um, that God welcomed me home after I rejected him and hardened my heart to him. And I turned my back on him and ran from him. And I was very stubborn and uh, I grieved his spirit and, uh, that fills me with sadness, but also with joy. Because even though I grieved his spirit so deeply, he was there for me. Even when I ran from him, he walked with me through all the pain, um, protecting me and waiting for the day he could welcome me home with his arms open with rejoicing and thanksgiving. And he has said to me throughout those years, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Um, I wouldn't change the things that happened in my life, even if I had the chance. They make who I am today and they give me a deeper, richer, um, overwhelming appreciation of God's grace, um, which is a very precious gift um, uh, that I'm extremely thankful for. 
Do I think it was God's will for me to walk through those dark days? No. It's never God's will for his children to reject him and turn from his love. But he uses our mistakes and our choices that come from our sin for good to glorify his name. And that's a pretty amazing thing. It's a pretty amazing God that we have that he can take from ashes and create something out of beauty. Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Again, I don't want to put too much emphasis on what I went through today. The point is not for people to feel bad for me or, or feel sorry for me for what I went through. It's not the focus of this story. The choices that I made brought the events that transpired in my life. I chose to be in rebellion. And the consequences that came with that, even though I was unaware of the pain it would bring, is ultimately my fault. I started down that path on my own free will and I turned my back on God, but God never, never turned his back on me. So. Through sharing my story, I want to give you enough of a glimpse to show you how far I was from God so you can see his abounding grace, his healing, and his restoration. That's the focus of this testimony today. It's for God's glory to be revealed, just as the focus of the parable of the prodigal son. I also want to tell you guys that uh, God doesn't just stop at grace. He provides healing and restores us to what we have lost. He gives us hope for our future and a reason for living and a purpose for our lives. Joel 2, 25 and 26 says, I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. Many of you would know that you've made some pretty bad decisions in your lost state as well. It may be that you're the person who would not obey the Lord's call or followed the wrong crowd or went into drugs or alcohol or immoral conduct. You could have had an abortion or multiple abortions. Maybe you've committed adultery and left your spouse for another person. Maybe you've been involved in the occult, some shady business deals, gross immorality, too painful to think about. You can't believe that God would ever completely forget about those abominable practices that you participated in. Maybe you've compromised in every single area of your life and you don't feel that you could ever get clean again. God wants to tell you, as Sarah pointed out, I will restore to you the years that were lost. I will restore you. He says, I am a restorer. I can reverse even what seems to you to be irreversible. God can turn your life around. You might be an older person, actually, who feels that you've wasted too many years or lost too much time to ever finish strong. If that's the case, then you need to look hard at this, what this parable reveals. It reveals not only, as I've said so many times before, that the power of God's grace is greater than the prison of man's sin, but it reveals that the process of radical repentance unleashes the promise of radical grace. It's time to experience this parable through the eyes of the younger son because his story was really ours. And the first step in the process is to realize where it all began. It begins with a radical rejection. Luke 15, verse 11, he said, Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them went to his father, said, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. An outlandish request he makes. He was impatient, he was arrogant, in search of his freedom. The son makes an outlandish request. I want my inheritance, I want it now. I don't want to wait, I want to walk. The implication is that he wanted to wash his hands of the father, the family, the farm, everything, which in his opinion, limited his personal freedom. And so walk he did. 
Someone wrote, Sunni is a mere speck on the horizon. There's no question in my mind that this was likely one of the hardest things the father ever had to do, from my perspective as a father. He had to let go. And he did it without argument. Knowing full well the pain that awaited his son's decision, he lets him go, his heart torn in half, in grief, yet multiplied in love. As Swindoll observed, being a parent at such moments is the toughest task on earth. Many people might ask, what led you to rejecting your faith at such a young age and rebelling so dramatically? Well, I'd have to simply answer you. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe I was uh, born a sinner. <laughs> we all are. There were other factors, though, that intensified and led up to the rejection of my family values and my faith. As a young girl, I struggled with an undiagnosed obsessive compulsive disorder, um, which really came a lot into play in my teen years and into my adult years. I had severe depression and anxiety due to chemical imbalance. I was also um, very sensitive to spiritual battles that are raging all around us every day. Most people don't realize that God um, protects us, has a protective veil around us. Um, we don't like to think of that. It's uncomfortable, it's sometimes downright frightening subject that shakes us to the core. It leaves us feeling incredibly vulnerable and you know, as human beings, I don't think we like that. We like to feel like we're in control. But it's true and we should feel that way. Apart from God, we're completely exposed to Satan and all the powers of hell that seek to devour us and rip us apart. If you're not afraid, you should be. Because the battles that are raging for our souls out there, they're real and they're all around us. As a young girl, um, I began self-mutilation in the form of cutting and burning. I was just dying inside, and the act of that helped me remind myself that I was, I was still alive. If I felt the pain, at least I felt something, and the numbness of my soul seemed a little bit less frightening. But slowly through that, I was just giving myself over to the enemy. During this time, I was open to intense spiritual battles. Um, God lifted that veil, I believe, a little bit just to allow me to see the things. Um, that some of you out there might not even believe are to be true. Kind of like something out of a movie, but it's, uh, it's a lot scarier in real life. Um, every time you wake up and go through your day, thank God that he has that hand of protection over you and over your life. Without it, we would never recover and we wouldn't be the same. Even after the intense things I experienced during that time, I know that God, God still had his hand of protection over me. And I truly believe that if he hadn't, I would my life would have been so damaged that I just would never have recovered. It wouldn't have been the same again. During this time, I saw things, demons, uh, heard voices. Um, I would have lapses of times that I would do things I didn't remember, um, hallucinations of spiritual and physical bondage. Um, one of these uh, resulted in a suicide attempt that actually landed me in St. Mary's Hospital. For time's sake, I'm not going to be going deeper into that aspect of my testimony, but it gives you a little picture of the spiritual battle that I did encounter. Um, but 1 John chapter 4, verses 3 4, through 4 says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of whom you have heard is coming, and now is already in the world. Little children, you are from God. You have conquered them, for one, the one who is with you and in you is greater than the one who's in the world. So Satan, that's, that gives us hope. That's I love that verse. Um, but Satan would have you believe that he's not real. He would have you believe that he's not yet in the world. He wants you to forget that he's prowling around 
seeking whom he can devour. But remember, 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10 says, discipline yourselves and keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him, steadfast in your faith. For you know your brothers and sisters all around the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever. Satan may prowl around like a roaring lion, but if we are in Christ and Christ is in us, he's a lion that has no teeth. God is in control, so don't be afraid. God will only let you be tested to what you are able to bear. All things pass through God's hand before coming to pass in our lives. The depression and the raging battle for my soul pulled me further away from my family. I became isolated and it eventually led me to reject my faith along with my Savior. Um, I grew increasingly lonely over those years. It consumed me until I just gave up on life. I didn't have any desire to live anymore. Um, I was filled with hatred. Every part of me was being, of my being was angry and bitter. Um, I was just in so much pain. I didn't know how to feel happy anymore. I didn't know how to accept love from others, and I, and I didn't know how to give love. Bitterness and a stubborn spirit and a hard heart eventually turned into my outright rebellion. Outright rebellion is a good phrase. Look at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey in a distant country and there he squandered his estate with loose living. He left home and he turned his back, went his way. Let me ask you a question. What does it mean to leave home? What does it mean to leave home? Henry Nouwen wrote, leaving home is living as though you do not have a home and must look far and wide to find one. But we, like this son, already have a home if we're in Christ, don't we? Philippians 3.20 says, for our citizens, citizenship is in heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we eagerly await for, wait for him as our returning Savior. For some reason, we have this tendency to become deaf to the voice of the one who loves us and are drawn to the deceptive words, world, voices of the world, which work on us day and night, over and over again, promising what they can never deliver. The world cannot deliver what only heaven can promise. Many can testify, even weeping, that the distant country of worldly satisfaction always ends in bitter disappointment. Uh, my unhappiness led me to blame others for the way I felt. I started searching something to fill that deep void inside of me. I thought I would find it in personal freedom, um, out of the protection of my parents and my faith. I thought I would find it in the world. Um, after all, people in the world, they did whatever they pleased. They seemed pretty happy. Outwardly, the world promised happiness and freedom, but ultimately, it delivers suffering and bondage. This is where the enemy, enemy reels you in because, you see, in order to embrace the world, you have to leave behind God's truths, and you have to choose. You can't walk both paths. So I began running from God as far and as fast as I possibly could. Um, here's a quick overview of um, the following um, years. I lost my virginity by rape in the eighth grade. I began drinking and smoking. I was getting high every day. 
I started experimenting with hallucinogenic drugs. I stopped attending school, skipping classes to use substances. By my sophomore year in high school, I was completely out of school, um, somehow managing to pull together a uh, degree and graduating from the state of Maine with a diploma by independent studies. At 16, I completely left home in search of, again, personal freedom that I ultimately thought would bring me happiness, um, only to find my sin held me tighter and tighter in, in bondage and pulled me deeper into depression. But because I was so stubborn and had an embittered spirit, and my hard heart kept me from repenting and returning home. See, we see this in the prodigal son when he turns to the world for help instead of returning to his father and goes to fine work feeding swine. You know, you and I become a prodigal every single time that we search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. Whenever we search for freedom, satisfaction, fulfillment, or understanding outside the realm of our Father's covering, at bottom, the question this son's act, Sarah's acts, raises within us is simply this. To whom do I belong? To God or to the world? To whom do I belong? As most often occurs, the younger son's radical rejection brought him to a radical realization. Look at verse 14. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. He couldn't make it on his own. His freedom all of a sudden turned to panic. And the first thing he realized was that the resources eventually do run out. And he wasted his foolishly. The respected London preacher Joseph Parker wrote, there is nothing so easy as waste. It does not require any genius to waste property, to waste beauty, to waste life. Any man can waste what he has. It's easy to do the destructive part of work, life, life's work. So why is it that so many people, Christians not excluded, continue to take the gifts that God has given them and waste them rather than develop them and utilize them for the glory of God? After foolishly wasting his resources, he went another step down the ladder of destruction. He frantically went to the world. And after the radical realization that he couldn't make it on his own, he attached himself to a foreigner. He went to the world for help rather than to his father. He was a taker, the kind of person that will bleed you dry. Totally me-oriented. The word used here denotes in this parable that he forced himself on the citizen of that country. He attached himself to the world when he should have attached himself to his family. But that wasn't in the plan. Not his plan. Proverbs 25, 19 says, Like a bad tooth or a lame foot is trust in a faithless person in time of trouble. I know that. <laughs> I lived it. So at this time in my life, I lived with uh, various boyfriends. I started drinking every day to wash away the pain and to numb my thoughts. I started using hard drugs, pretty much anything I could get my hands on to get rid of the pain when alcohol wasn't enough anymore. Eventually, I got into a relationship with a man much older than myself. 
He was abusive in every form, physically, mentally, sexually. Um, I became isolated from my friends and family, forced to quit my job. My car was taken from me. I was not allowed to even go to doctor's appointments. And eventually, I wasn't allowed to leave the house. If randomly by chance, or like I like to think God's divine appointment to keep my parents' hope alive, um, if they saw me in passing at a store or in a parking lot, they would call it a Sarah sighting because they knew that I was still alive. This man made two attempts on my life, both incredible stories that reveal God's hand of protection over me at that time, of my rebellion. Um, so there's some of my deepest, darkest days, um, and they're pretty incredible stories, but because of time, I can't share those with you today. Um, because I was not yet 18, my parents eventually intervened and tried to keep me from this person um, and uh, got me home. I went to stay with a friend because I couldn't stand being at their house. I felt like a prisoner, even though it was my one source of true freedom. Satan is the master of lies, and he twists the truth until he, it's so con contorted that you don't even know what truth is anymore. Your mind is literally veiled from reality. And that's, that's how I was. I was just living in not, in, not the real world, <laughs> in disillusionment. I foolishly believe at that time that the very man that was abusing me was my protector from my parents who were trying to rob me of my personal freedom and ultimately my happiness. While I was staying with my friend, I met a man that claimed to be a Christian. Um, this was all shortly before I turned 18. Um, he actually went to church. Um, he invited me to his house one day to, um, to hang out, and there he raped me. Um, that was a couple days before my 18th birthday. Later, I found out he had just gotten out of jail for sexual assault, and I was one of 23 underage girls that he had raped since his release. Um, later, I was called to testify to this in, in the Supreme Court. This is truly life in the raw for both Sarah and us. Like the son in the parable, she was in the pigsty of so-called worldly freedom. And this was happening to the, to the, to the younger son in this parable. He fearfully writhed in his disillusionment in verse 16. He would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that he was feeding the pigs. But no one was giving him anything. How low could a Jewish boy go? Not much lower than caring for pigs. The implication is that he was starving out there in the world. And that's what we do spiritually when we seek our spiritual sustenance from the world. We literally starve to death spiritually. And this son who enjoyed more food than he could ever want at his father's table was now dying for the worst scraps the world could offer. Pods used to slop the pigs. And no one would give him that. My wife and I found this out later, and it's really kind of hard for me to think about without simultaneously getting vehemently angry and emotionally sick inside. But when, when Sarah was had moved with this, in, with this abusive boyfriend, she literally was relegated for a time. She was relegated to the back room of the house with no heat, where she could watch them eat. She would watch them eat their supper first. And after the dog ate, then she could eat what was left over. And this was the freedom that she left home for. It's not freedom, is it? And she knew that. Here's, here's our sin, as, as Sarah 
says, and, I, and the Bible says, our depravity in full bloom. It's here that a person reaches the point in which they will eat anything, sleep anywhere, with anyone, and for any reason. And the staunch reality in that world is that nobody cares. And folks, it can get pretty bad when you're all alone in the world. Pretty bad. When I finally turned 18, I went back to my abusive relationship. I became pregnant. The man I was with wanted me to have an abortion. When I refused to have the abortion, he threatened me that if, I had, if he had to take care of it and me at the same time to get rid of the problem, he would do it. He attempted to accomplish this, but I was again protected by God's hand. Um, and I was so manipulated and controlled by this man that I actually believed that I deserved the abuse that he was giving me. I didn't think I deserved any better, that I wasn't worth anything, that I held no value. Let me tell you what, you teen women, you hold incredible value to your Heavenly Father. He loves you so much. Um, this is what Satan wants all of us to believe. God tells us differently. Something snapped in me that day. I knew in my heart that even if I felt like I deserved that kind of treatment, the life inside me, because it is a life growing inside of me, I knew that. My baby, my baby didn't deserve that. And I was just flooded with strength that can only come from God. And I finally, finally turned to my parents for help. That's life in the raw. When people don't look at you as a human being anymore. That kind of isolation is about as deep as loneliness gets. And I, I got to tell you, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that my wife and I had, had not listened to some people who said, cut her off, write her off, don't ever let her in your house again. We always told her the door was open. And if we hadn't done that, she never would have had anywhere to call. That kind of isolation is about as deep as loneliness can get. This younger son was in that place. He was utterly lost, and he knew it. It was the radical realization of his lostness that caused him to come to his senses. When Satan has a hold of your life, you're not rational. Your decisions don't make any sense because they're all bent on destruction. Satan is the author of confusion. He comes to seal and destroy and devour. Those are his goals. He makes you lose sight of all that holds true value and makes you throw it away for the emptiness of the world. And it doesn't happen overnight. You think you'll be able to recognize it when you're there, but you can't. It's a very slow process in which you lose yourself one bad decision at a time until Satan has free reign in your life. And you didn't even know how you got there. You didn't even realize it. It's an extremely scary thought. When my... Um, daughter was three months old. Uh, God again tried to get my attention when I moved into a house with a new boyfriend, separate boyfriend than this man. I, I left him for good at that point. Um, a week after we moved in, it burned, um, it burned to the ground. I suffered carbon monoxide poisoning, passing out during the fire. And I was later pulled out by my boyfriend from the house. Um, and I didn't even come to until the next morning. Um, because Nobody could reach me, and they didn't, my parents didn't know where I was. They, the last time they, they heard I was at this house, 
Um, they didn't know at that point if I was alive or dead. Um, all that was remaining of the house was just a brick chimney stack in the middle of ashes. Um, when we run from God and he reaches out and tries to get our attention, he never stops calling us home to come back to him. I lost everything I owned that day, and I almost lost my life. And I still wasn't hearing God's voice. And by the way, teens, if you think you have time to go out and experience the world and come back to your faith, let me tell you, you don't, or you may not. I could have died in that fire that day. After the fire, I started working three jobs to try to recover from losing everything I owned, and my parents took over full-time care for my daughter. I had no place to live, and I jumped around a lot. Um, I started dating a man, um, not a, a Christian, but he was a good person. Uh, we settled into an apartment. Once I had a stable place to live, I again um, took my daughter and started to care for her. Even though over the next two years, she would be with my parents a lot of the time, especially on weekends when I would find a babysitter and, and go out to party, trying to erase the memories of the you know, previous years and everything that had happened and try to just kind of wash those down with substances. Um, I was still very lost and hurting very deeply. During this time, uh, I was also raped a third time, and that um, I won't go into, but that was a, kind of a turning point for me when I finally started waking up. Verse 17 says that he finally came to his senses and realized what was going on. Don't miss the pattern in the parable. He foolishly wasted his resources, then he frantically went to the world, then he fearfully writhed in disillusionment, and then he finally woke up to the truth. The truth that the consequences of sin are very severe. I've often said, it's not original with me, I've quoted other people with this, but it's very, very apropos here. Sin will do three things in your life. Number one, sin will always take you farther than you're willing to go. I didn't realize when I left home how many compromises that I would have to make. Second thing is sin will always keep you longer than you're willing to stay. I became bound to my sinful choices and I could not break free. And thirdly, sin will cost you more than you're willing to pay. Cost me everything. See, like nothing else, God's word tells us the unadulterated, uncensored truth, doesn't it? Regardless of how hard it is to hear, after his radical rejection, the son needed to come to a radical realization. He had sinned. He never should have left. And it's right here in this critical moment in this parable that he accepts his own insufficiency to save himself and he makes a very difficult but right choice. He plans for a radical return. After four years, uh, I actually became engaged to um, my boyfriend and uh, over this time I started really searching for healing. Um, I didn't want that life anymore. Um, I was sick of it. Um, everything about it uh, repulsed me. I realized that I'd wasted so many years of my life, just years that were gone that I could never get back. I started reading my Bible again. I even went to church once or twice. Uh, I started asking questions and seeking, and I really just wanted to find peace. Um, just wanted peace. And I knew deep inside that peace only comes from Jesus Christ. 
You cannot find it in the world. It just comes from our Savior. And I knew I couldn't do that on my own. Psalm 146, 7 and 8 says, The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind, and the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. Just read the scripture here. In verse, verse 18. The young man said, I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. He realized his wrong. I realized that living with my fiance while we were not yet married was wrong, so I asked him to leave. Eventually, I knew that we were unequally yoked and decided that the only option, even though it was painful for me, was to break it off. So the young boy here rehearsed his plan in verse 19. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Does God ever demand from us an explanation for sin? What do you think? Of course he doesn't. He doesn't want excuses and explanations. He wants confession. Confession. I knew that if I wanted to begin a new life full of hope and promise, I needed to completely, in every aspect, leave my old life behind. Verse 20 says, so he got up and came to his father. Look at that statement again. He got up and came to his father. Believe it or not, the weight of that statement is found in what the son does not say. Verse 18 says, I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. See, he doesn't say, I'll return to my house. He doesn't say, I'll go back to my neighborhood. He didn't even say, I'll go back to the synagogue. I'll go back to church. He says, I will go to my father. I'll go to my father. The essence of a radical repentance is a return to a relationship, a relationship with your heavenly father. And as a side note, the parents of prodigals Listen to the words of a very wise man of God. Chuck Swindoll wrote these words. He says, parents, the most significant thing in your home is you. It's not your things. It's not your belongings. It's not how many rooms that you have in your house or how many cars you park in your garage. It's you they remember when they come to the end of themselves. Rebellion dies hard, but when it dies, repentance emerges. The most significant thing in our lives is a relationship with God our Father. That is what we miss the most when we wander off on our own. That is what we need to return to. Our decision must, must be, I will get up and I will return to my Father. And when we do, you know what happens? We experience the same exact thing that the Son experiences in this parable. A radical restoration. Look at verse 20 again. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf Kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began 
to celebrate. Three things happen here in these, in these words. Number one, he was ravished by love. His father went out to him. He was, as I often say, he was seized by the power of a great affection. God has never, nor will he ever, pull back his arms of love, blessing, and acceptance to the one whose heart is broken before him. He never will. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Here is the astounding radical nature of grace. As Nowen puts it, I am loved so much that I am left free to leave home. But the Father is always looking for me with outstretched arms to receive me back and whisper again in my ear, You are my beloved. On you my favor rests. Parents, just want to share something with you. If you have a prodigal son or daughter, grandson or granddaughter, or even if your child is still home, you may be asking, what can I do? Pray for them. Pray hard for them and love them. The power of prayer is an incredible thing. For any of you out there who may find yourself doubting that, I'm standing here today as a living example that God answers prayers in a mighty way. Love your children even if they scorn you. Let them know they can always come home to you. Even though I hurt my parents deeply, I knew in my heart I could walk through their door at any moment and in any condition, no matter what I'd done, and they would accept me home unconditionally and with love. That gave me a sense of unshakable security that I held on to and thought about many times when I was away in the world. And I, did, I chose not to turn for them for help when I most needed it, but I knew I could. My parents relentlessly refused to give up on me. They refused to give up hope. They prayed for me unceasingly, even when things looked hopeless. Place your trust in God. There is no one beyond the reach of his hand. Philippians 4, 6-7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I'm going to invite my wife up here. This is a very rare occurrence. <laughs> Um, my wife was the stronghold in, in praying for Sarah. I'll tell you what, she never, ever stopped. But she also felt it very deeply in her heart, the loss. And there were times when, you know, we always held out on the small thread of hope, but there were times when we just didn't know. It was like there was no hope on the horizon for all intents and purposes. But God spoke to her in this strange way. There were many dark days, a lot of you know that. Um, I often felt that I was just at the end. I was at the end of everything. But God always sent just exactly what I needed at just the exact right time. One particular time, um, one of the, uh, God spoke to me through a dream. <laughs> um, I was in a helicopter, one of those great big cargo helicopters, and I was plastered against the back wall, and I was looking out the other side. I couldn't see the pilot, I just sensed that it was God, and he was navigating us over some mountains, but I was safe. Sarah was not safe. 
She was dangling headfirst out of the open door. Below her, there were mountains. There were sharp, jagged mountains, and I knew that if she fell, it would be her death. She was flailing about, and her hair was being whipped by the wind. But someone had a firm grip on her ankle, just one ankle. And I was begging that person, pull her in, please just pull her in. That person holding her turned to me, and he looked at me, and he said, when she stops fighting me, I will pull her in. And I knew that it was Jesus. She had, come, she had to come to the end of herself, and she had to give up her fight. Only then would Jesus be able to help her. And I had to wait, and I had to watch, and I was horrified. But I knew he had a firm grip. He was not going to let her go. He was not going to leave her, and he was just waiting. But he was holding her all the way. That was it. I woke up. But that dream got me through many more dark years and dark days. I was given hope, which is an amazing gift, and I pray it gives you hope too. So God would not let our daughter go, even though she was flailing around. In the face of such ravishing love, I believe Sarah repented in her heart like the son in the parable. He repented in his heart, I believe, in verse 21. seems to indicate that. See, in a moment of, of genuine repentance, the prodigal, prodigal succumbs to the radical love of the father and simply admits his sin. He doesn't even get out that you can hire me as a hired servant because it wouldn't do any good. You can never be a hired servant in your father's house. You're a son or a daughter. And so he literally accepts to be found in this parable. That is grace in all of its glory, accepting to be found. He confessed his sin, he humbled himself, recognized his unworthiness, and he throws himself on the mercy of his Abba. And he's forgiven. So how do we know his repentance was real? We don't. God does. God does. He sees beyond the outward appearance and he's straight into the heart. You know, let, just let me tell you this. God's grace is not attained by repeating some prayer or walking some aisle or performing some ritual. It's not the result of some three-step formula that you can repeat. It's received when a person sees his sin as repugnant and as disgusting as God sees it and turns in the opposite direction. What Jesus reminds us of here in this parable of the lost son and the loving father is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's exactly what happened to our prodigal daughter and the prodigal son in the parable. They were forgiven. The father in the parable never once mentioned the boy's sin again. Instead, the boy was restored to honor. It's funny that it uh, doesn't say that the father mentions the boy's sin again, yet as sinners we are called to relive that. Um, and bring glory to God through it, through our testimony. Once I started making the right choices in my life and seeking God, his blessings just started pouring in. I now have a beautiful family, a godly husband who loves me and takes care of me as God designed it. I have two amazing blessings that bring me immense joy 
Emily, who's turning nine in September, and Lila, who just turned three. I've shared my testimony a couple of times, um, some different conferences and other churches, and while it's never easy, it's always worth it. Today I'm sharing my story with you, my home church, um, so it's hard to stand here in front of you and share some of the deepest hurts in my past and the darkest days I, I walked through, knowing that probably most of you will never look at me the same again. If you can relate to this feeling, any of you, um, maybe you've never shared your testimony because of a fear of this, of the way people might look at you. Um, I want to encourage you today not to allow that to be a hindrance from sharing your testimony because it's straight from the enemy who wants to silence us. Revelation 12:11 says, we conquer the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. In fact, I, I actually, I want to issue a challenge to you today. If you've never shared your testimony, I would like you to, to pray about doing so. Ask God to present you with the opportunity to share what he's done in your life. I never wanted to, to share my testimony. Um, I felt called to share it, and I have you know, shared it multiple times now. Um, God will present you with that opportunity, and most importantly, he will give you the strength to be able to get through it when you need it. We should not be worried about the thoughts and judgments of others, but rather how our Father views us, and only be concerned with pleasing him. God is unchanging. He does not formulate judgments as the world does. He loves me, and he loves you, even though I was lost, and I became severely disfigured by my sin. Um, God called me to share this story, so who am I to refuse him? It's not my story anyway. As Molly said earlier, I say this every time I share my testimony. Um, it's not my story that I can selfishly hide it away from the world and keep it locked up inside where I feel safe. It's God's story, and it's meant to be shared. It's meant to reveal his glory and his faithfulness. So if you're here today in search of hope, I pray that listening to my story will help you to find that hope in Jesus Christ. Encountering this parable through ex the experience of the lost son and a lost daughter is, is, iron, is an ironclad reminder that we're loved beyond all measure and beyond all reason. Did the father deal with the son according to his sins in this parable? No. Does he deal with us according to our sins? No. Do we deserve forgiveness? Absolutely not. He deals with us according to grace and according to his mercy. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 103, verse 10, He's not punished us for all of our sins, nor does he deal with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our rebellious acts as far is from us, as far as the east is from the west. It's a good thing too, isn't it? That's the essence of what happened on the cross. God knew that we couldn't pay the debt that we owed, so he paid it for us. Jesus paid for our sins in full, the Bible says. Full. It's finished. And we owe nothing. He did the same thing for Sarah and for me and my wife many of you. Our story is the story of the prodigal son. And it reminds us that no matter what our story is, 
We're loved by the Father, and it's never too late to be forgiven. Never too late. Unlike the prodigal son, my return home was uh, not a journey made seemingly overnight. It doesn't exactly say in, uh, in the parable how quickly he returned, but um, mine wasn't overnight. It wasn't in a few months, months even. It took a long time. Um, it was a very slow process of dying to self and sacrificing my will for God's will in my life, in every aspect of my life. God doesn't want 99% of you to be obedient and have you hold one little thing back. He wants all of you. Every step I took, I knew I wanted to make in the direction of drawing closer to my Savior. And closer, the closer I got to Jesus, the more I gained a deepened under, appreciation for his truly amazing grace. He has richly blessed my life with joy and happiness, peace and fulfillment beyond measure. I never thought I could feel again. I can't thank him enough for that. I can't sing enough praises to my Lord for his faithfulness and his mercy. I cannot abide in his word long enough and dwell in his presence more. The more I have Jesus, the more I want of him. And the less of me that remains, the greater joy I feel. I'm so blown away by the fact that God would take a sinner like me and offer me the gift of salvation. That he would rejoice in having me as his child. His love is deeper than anyone can comprehend. His grace extends farther than our hearts could ever know, and his joy cannot be contained, and it overflows more and more as we seek his face. His faithfulness reaches far beyond the heavens, and his word pierces even the hardest of hearts. We can rest secure when we place our trust and our hope in him. Grace is a gift. It's undeserved, and it's unexpected, and I wouldn't trade it for anything the world has to offer. I was far from God, but God was never far from me. In the parable of the prodigal son, the writer leaves the story open-ended. My dad talked about this in his last couple messages. Even though we're left to imagine what might have happened next, I know one thing for certain, is that the story doesn't stop with God's grace. It goes beyond that. It continues with restoration and revival and healing and a renewed strength that only comes from God. He gives you a call and a purpose for your life, and he makes beauty from ashes. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 says, You are dead through your trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of our flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. But God in his mercy and out of his great love for us which he loved us even when we were dead through our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 says, He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of our sins. I want to leave you with some words that I ran across in a devotional one time. It simply says this, to those of us in flight who are afraid to turn around lest we run into ourselves, this is what Jesus says. He says, you have a home. I am your home. Let's pray.
Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you so much for the gift of your grace and mercy. Which restores prodigal sons and daughters to their rightful place at home with you when we turn. Come to a radical realization of our sin and repent. Thank you for your forgiveness which stretches beyond all time and eternity. Thank you for the promise of new life in Christ. I pray for each and every single parent and child here in this room or within earshot, this message, that the hope of the message of the gospel would ring in their ears. That the truth might have its work in our hearts and minds and lives. May your name be honored and glorified, Lord God. May your glory fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. For the sake of your name, I pray. Amen.